this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 11 this morning. John chapter 11. As I said earlier, we're moving into the second half of the Gospel of John. We began the Sunday before Christmas, and really the first half of John, scholars refer to as the book of the signs. It revolves around these seven miracles, these seven signs of Jesus, and we've been walking through those seven signs week by week. But today, we begin to look at what scholars call the book of the cross. We're moving into Jerusalem now, and and what's going to happen is going to be all of the events surrounding the passion of Christ. And so we move into that today, and so we're going to begin with John chapter 11 and verse 45, and I'm going to read through chapter 12 and verse 28. Today we're talking about a plot, a pouring, and a prophecy. Plot, pouring, and prophecy. Take a look at God's Word. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, it's page 898. The Bible says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let let them know so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. 
For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. And we'll glorify it again. Let's pray. Father, we pray for Jesus to be glorified this morning. As Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Just as Jesus was lifted up on a cross that all might be drawn to him, may we lift up Christ right now that we might be drawn to him. Some for the first time, some to a deeper relationship with our Savior. Speak to us now. Lord, cause us to love you more. Cause us to love others more. May we see your amazing grace in the gospel now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In October of 1991... A fishing boat out of Gloucester, Massachusetts, the Andrea Gale, was about 500 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean. There was a cold front that was building from the west, enough to produce a disturbance, a storm. At the same time that the cold front was coming from the west, there was a high-pressure system that was coming down from the north, and the combination of those two things was enough to produce a very strong storm. But then, just like gasoline being thrown onto a fire, the dying remnants of a hurricane were moving in from the southeast with all of that tropical energy. 
And the combination of these three storms produced what meteorologists refer to and later as a book title and the title of a movie referred to as the perfect storm. And what we're seeing in this part of John as we move into the second half of John is we're, we're seeing all of the elements of a perfect storm converging on Jesus. But unlike the, the, the crew of the Andrea Gale, who, uh, who they never found anything of that boat except for tiny fragments of wood floating on the surface of the water. The entire crew was lost. Unlike the crew of that fishing boat who were helpless victims of a storm, Jesus is anything but that. Jesus is totally in control of this storm. As he moves into Jerusalem, he's totally in control of, of everything that is happening, and it's all part of God's plan. Because his death is going to result in his resurrection and in our rescue. But we see these storm clouds gathering as this plot against Jesus begins to take shape. Now what we see the beginnings of this plot in verse 45 of chapter 11. It says, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. Well, what had they seen? It's talking about the raising of Lazarus, which we talked about last week. They had seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Now, you have to understand, it wasn't just that Mary and Martha saw the raising of Lazarus. This was a big group of people that saw Lazarus come out of that tomb. Well, you can be sure of this. When a man who's been dead for four days comes out of a tomb alive, word's going to get around. And it's going to get around fast. It, and, it, and word reaches the religious leaders who have already been plotting and who hate Jesus. And so now these enemies of Jesus get together and, and, they, and they say in verse 47, yeah, what are we going to do? So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council. The council referred to here as the Sanhedrin. And they controlled not only just religious law, but civil law in Israel. They were the governing authorities among the Jewish people. And so the council gets together and they say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now this is an odd gathering because the, the, the chief priests were primarily, they were Sadducees. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees hated one another, absolutely hated one another. But they were united in their hatred of Jesus. And so they get together and, and, and they say, hey, what, are, what are we going to, to do about this man. And we see the heart of their fear here in verse 48. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place. And by, when they say our place, they're talking about the temple, okay, in Jerusalem. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So here we, we see uh, the threat that they perceive in Jesus. We've already seen their hostility building. Jesus does things like heal on the Sabbath and things like that. But, but, but now we, we get to this, the heart of their, 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 their fear when it comes to, to Jesus. And, and they basically just say, look, if this stuff keeps going on, he's going around, he's doing these miracles, he's attracting these great crowds. If this keeps going on, then there's going to be a rebellion against the Romans. Jesus is going to lead a rebellion against the Romans, and the Romans are going to come. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to crush us, 
And, you know, at least now, the way that it is now, sure, we're under occupation and so forth, but we enjoy a certain amount of autonomy and we kind of run things around here. If it keeps going on like this, there's going to be rebellion against Rome. They're going to come. They're going to crush us. They're going to, uh, to, to destroy the temple and they're going to, to, to kick us out. And, uh, you know, it's going to be like the Babylonian exile all over again. That's what had happened in the Old Testament. Uh, they, the Babylonians had come. Jerusalem was destroyed. First temple was destroyed. And they were all sent into exile. They're saying, this, this is what's going to happen again if we don't take action against this man. Well, it's very ironic that they're saying these things for a couple of reasons. First of all, Jesus has made it perfectly clear that he had no intention whatsoever of leading any kind of political or military rebellion against the Romans. But since these leaders thought in very political, very cynical terms, uh, they think Jesus must be thinking this way as, as well. Uh, so really they're ascribing their own motivations really to Jesus. But it's ironic for a second reason too, and that is that the very thing that they fear is going to happen. The Romans are going to come in 70 A.D. And, and leave Jerusalem and the temple in a heap of smoking ruins. But it's not going to be because of Jesus. Dr. D.A. Carson says this, And so he died, but the nation perished anyway, not because of Jesus' activity, but because of the constant mad search for political solutions where there was so little spiritual renewal. When I read that last statement by Dr. Carson, I thought so much about our own country and about, about Christians in our own country at this point in America's history. Because we lament the rapid moral decline of our culture as we should. We seek to make a difference politically as we should. But listen to me. There is really not going to be any sort of sweeping, lasting change in America short of a spiritual renewal. Short of, a, of, an, of a, an awakening, a spiritual awakening that shakes us to our very foundations. And spiritual awakening does not begin with lost people. It begins with God's people. It begins with each one of us humbling ourselves before Almighty God in brokenness and in repentance for our own sin and humbly seeking God. It, it begins there. That's where healing for our land begins with each one of us in spiritual Renewal. Well, as this debate continues in the Sanhedrin, and they're all talking and going back and forth about what should be done with Jesus, the high priest, Caiaphas, who was a Sadducee, uh, injects himself into the situation and arrogantly just cuts off all discussion. The Jewish historian Josephus uh, says this about the, the Sadducees. He says, They are, even among themselves, rather boorish in their behavior 
and in their intercourse with their peers are as rude as to aliens. Well, you, you see, Caiaphas fits that description to a T here. He's the ultimate cynical politician, and now Caiaphas just ends the discussion. Verse, verse 49 and following. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, his motivation for saying this is entirely political and cynical. Because Caiaphas is saying, look, this guy's got to die. He has to die. Because it's either going to be that or wrath is going to fall on this nation. And he's talking about the wrath of Rome. Well, Caiaphas speaks much more here than what he knows. He doesn't know, but he's really speaking words of of prophecy because Jesus was going to die for the nation and for peoples everywhere so that we would be spared from wrath, but not the wrath of Rome, the wrath of Almighty God against our sin. That's why Jesus was going to die. So Caiaphas speaks much more than what he knows that he's speaking here. But he does end the debate. Uh, Verse 53 says, So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. So now you have the sort of the official governing body of the Jewish people that are seeking to put Jesus to death. The plot has been finalized. We move from the plot to the pouring in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So what a contrast here. We just saw this gathering of hate with the Pharisees and Sadducees as they gather to direct hate toward Jesus. And now in Bethany you have this gathering to direct love toward Jesus. So here's, they're all sitting around the table. Here's Lazarus who was raised from the dead and Jesus the one who raised him from the dead, who called him out of the tomb. They're both sitting there at the table. Martha, true to form, is serving. And then Mary comes into the room. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This last sentence is one of those eyewitness details that you see again and again in the Gospel of John. John was there that night. And and even many years later as he writes this Gospel, the the memory of that pervasive, wonderful smell of that ointment that that fill that room John is remembering the scene that night but it was it was more than just the the sweetness of that fragrance 
filling the room. It was love that was filling that room and, and love and Mary's heart as she, she comes in and, and she pours this out. And the other Gospels tell us that it was in an alabaster flask, which was very expensive in and of itself. But the nard, which was an ointment that was imported from India or Arabia, was incredibly expensive. It, later in this text, we see that it was worth about a year's wages a year's wages for an average person. And Mary just breaks, breaks open the flask and pours it, pours it all out on Jesus. Kent Hughes says this, What would we give for Jesus? What is our most valued possession? For some of us, it is our bank account. For others, it is our position. For some, it is a relationship. The question is, would we give it? Will we make it available for Jesus' use? Mary humbly gave her best to Jesus. Undoubtedly, I mean, this is like a, a family heirloom, probably something that's been passed down. It was maybe her most treasured earthly possession. And that's really the, the point of it, isn't it? Because she was taking this most treasured earthly possession and pouring it all out for the one that she had come to recognize as her real treasure, her true treasure. I mean, it was a shocking kind of a, kind of a thing. Uh, and, and what made it even more shocking is that she pours it out on the feet of Jesus. And begins to wipe his feet. I mean, that was something that was only done by the, the lowest of the low. Slaves. We're going to see in the next chapter, next week, that, that washing feet was something that the disciples, they wouldn't even do it for one another. Jesus had to do it for them. But Mary here is just taking the position of, of, of the lowest servant, the lowest slave. Jesus said, the greatest among you is what? It's the one who serves. The, 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 one who, the one who takes the lowest position, who assumes the posture of a servant, is the one who is great in the eyes of God. It was shocking for another reason, and that is she let down her hair, which was something that women just did not do in that culture. But Mary does it. She just spontaneously lets it down and begins to, to, to wipe the feet of Jesus. because, And she does it in a very unself-conscious way, a very self-forgetful kind of way. May God give us that. That kind of self-forgetfulness where we're not thinking about what people may think, but we're just thinking about our love for Christ. And we have a single-minded focus on loving Him not worried about what other people are going to think. We, we see all of that here. We're going to look in more detail at that text tonight. But we see the plot. We see the pouring. Third, we see the prophecy. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So, what feast is this? It's Passover. It's the feast where the Jewish people remembered 
their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the Exodus experience, where God told them to kill lambs and sprinkle the blood of these lambs on their doorposts so that the death angel would pass over their house. And so they would be delivered from slavery in Egypt. And now Jesus is entering Jerusalem at Passover to die as the ultimate Passover lamb who will liberate us from an even deeper kind of slavery, and that is slavery to sin. That's where this whole gospel has been leading. John told us in the very first chapter, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the pieces of the puzzle are all coming together. Jesus is that ultimate Passover Lamb entering Jerusalem at Passover to die as the ultimate sacrifice so that we can be liberated from slavery to sin. We see here in verse 12 that it was a large crowd. During this time of year at Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell from about 100,000 to well over a million people. And so you have crowds swelling. You have messianic expectations swelling. Jerusalem is buzzing. Is this the Messiah? And is He coming? Is He coming in? Is He going to enter Jerusalem? And verse 13 says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But something's wrong with this picture. They're waving palm branches because that's what you did to signify military victory. That's what they would do for conquering military heroes. They would wave palm branches. See, this crowd is expecting that Jesus is going to be the kind of Messiah who is going to enter the city and He's going to kick out the invaders, kick out the Romans, lead in a, in, a, in, in a political, military kind of a way. This is what's on their mind. And so they're singing and waving palm branches, but Jesus isn't singing. The other Gospels make it clear that Jesus is weeping. He gets to the edge of Jerusalem and weeps over the city. Jesus isn't singing. Jesus is weeping. And Jesus isn't riding into Jerusalem on a war horse like a conquering hero, a military hero would. He's riding into Jerusalem on what? A donkey. Which was a symbol of humility and peace. Dr. F.F. Bruce points out that even in his selection of the animal that he was going to ride on, Jesus is correcting the misguided expectations of these people. Now, we we see here that um, in verses 14 and 15, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, just as it is written. It was a prophecy. This is the prophecy of Zechariah 9. Jesus clearly is fulfilling the prophecy of the ninth chapter of Zechariah in doing this. So we need to take a closer look at this prophecy in Zechariah. Just get the whole flavor of it. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. Dr. D.A. Carson makes three points about this prophecy as they relate to Jesus. First, this king does come to bring salvation, to bring rescue, but he doesn't come with the traditional weapons of war. He's not coming into Jerusalem as they would expect on a war horse. He's not coming with a chariot. He's not coming with a war a battle bow. Jesus doesn't come into Jerusalem with any of the tra- those traditional weapons of war. He comes into Jerusalem in peace and with love. Now listen, this was not what most of the people in Jerusalem expected or wanted. What they wanted was somebody who was, come, was going to come into town and deal with the Romans. That's the kind of Messiah they expected and wanted. Jesus comes with a different agenda. Second, this king comes offering rescue and salvation to all people. Not just the Jewish people. What, what, do, we, what do we see here? It says here that he shall speak peace to who? To the nations. That's the Gentiles. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is coming to bring salvation not to one group of people, but to all people groups. Now again, this is not what most of those people in Jerusalem wanted. They didn't want to hear about salvation for the Gentiles. This was going to be their moment of national glory when the Romans are kicked out and their national glory and dreams are, are fulfilled. I want to hear about, about the nations being reached, about Gentiles being reached. They had a different agenda. Now see, we think about this. This is what makes sense of what happens later on. In chapter 12, you remember when we read a while ago, we read about the, those Greeks, and the Greeks was just another word for Gentiles. So these Gentile people, they come to Jerusalem to the feast, and they're seeking Jesus. And Philip finds out about it, and, and Philip and Andrew go, and they tell 
Jesus, and, and when Jesus hears that, he immediately says, my hour has come. Throughout this gospel, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. The hour when he was going to, to die. Now, Jesus says, my hour has come. The appearance of Gentiles seeking him was like the trigger point, the signal. It's come. It's come. Look at um, verses 20 and following. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Greeks, just another word for Gentiles. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Gentiles seeking Jesus. Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And look at how Jesus immediately reacts to this news. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus sees his death as being something that is going to produce worldwide fruit from all people groups. He, he says it in verse 32. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, he's talking about being lifted up on a cross. When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw what? All people to myself. This is not the agenda that most of the people in Jerusalem have for their Messiah. It was going to be about them, their glory, not worldwide redemption for all people. Well, third, in Zechariah's prophecy, the, the king is coming to set the prisoners free by way of what? Blood. Blood. But not the Romans' blood. His own blood. Now again, this is not what these people want to hear. A Messiah who allows himself to be killed by the Romans instead of killing the Romans who allows himself to die and by crucifixion at that, not the kind of Messiah that we are expecting or looking for. Not in our plans. Jesus is going to prove to be such a disappointment that in just a few days, many of these same people that are crying, Hosanna, are going to be shouting, crucify him. Crucify Him. And we've all been in that crowd. We've all been in that crowd. They were shouting crucify Him because they wanted things their way. We have all wanted to run our lives our own way and therefore wanted Jesus to just get out of the way. And Jesus says, your rebellion against me is so serious that a price is going to have to be paid 
And either you're going to pay it yourself or you're going to let someone else. Either you are going to be condemned or I am going to be condemned for you. And Jesus is going to take our condemnation on the cross. But that pardon for sin only applies to those who trust in Him. Are you in that number today? If you're listening to this message anywhere at some point, are you in that number? Have you trusted in Christ, the one who, who, who took your condemnation so that you don't have to take it yourself? Because if you reject the Savior, it's going to result in your destruction. The means of salvation is there. Christ took the condemnation for all who will trust in Him. But you must make that decision. You must welcome the Savior into your life and trust in His finished work for you. You must allow Him to rescue you. And you see what's happening here. And what we're going to see as we continue moving forward in John is that Jesus is allowing all of the elements of the perfect storm to converge in one spot. He's allowing all of those violent elements of the perfect storm to converge on Him so that we can have peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your amazing love in giving Your Son for us. Father, as we continue to study this Gospel, Father, may You deepen our love for Jesus. Lord, give us the kind of love for Jesus that Mary had. A love that's joyfully willing to sacrifice to serve a love that where we forget ourselves and exalt you and where we're no longer thinking about what people think but just focused on pleasing you loving you Father I pray for anyone in my hearing right now whether they're in this room or listening to a recording of this message Father, that today would be the, the day of salvation, rescue in their life as they open up their life to Jesus and trust, rest, rely on His finished work for them and invite Him into their life as Savior and Lord. So we continue to pray. Is that the cry of your heart today? Jesus tells us that when we turn to Him and trust Him, that it's something that is not to remain a secret. Jesus dies for us publicly, and we're to acknowledge Him publicly. In just a moment as we stand and sing, I want to invite you to slip out from where you are and just come. We'll never embarrass you, but just slip out from where you are. People will gladly make way for you. I'm going to be right here at the front. Just share with me what God's done in your life today. And we want to come alongside you in love as you begin your journey as a disciple. 
maybe you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, we want to invite you to, to come today as well. We want to welcome you in love. If you're here today and there's a need in your life for prayer, you're invited to come pray with me or someone at the front or come and pray at this altar. It's open for you. So, Father, now speak to our hearts right now in the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, for decisions that need to be made about renewal, spiritual renewal, recommitment of life to you, those who are are, are trusting in Christ as Savior, Lord, any who need to be a part of this church family, Lord, would you deal with us right now in the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.